What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, October 22nd, 2021. Man, it's getting cold up here in Winnipeg. It's like 41 degrees Fahrenheit outside. It's proper winter, man. Ken, what's going on, man? I got to get a Aloha sweater that is next on the uh, list of items when I go shopping. Hopefully, you guys got a chance to tune in to the episode I released today with uh, Emily Balchetes. Uh, we talked about her book, Clear, Closer, Better. I also went live a few times this week, man. I've been going live. Uh, so on uh, earlier this week, I, I was live with, um, with Natalie Nixon. We talked about her book, The Creativity Leap. And yesterday, I went live with Christina Stathopoulos. Um, that's all there for you to view on YouTube if you want to, but have no fear. It'll be released on the podcast as well at some point in the near future. Uh, next week, I got an episode that's being released that um, I'm super excited about, man. I got Andy Hunt on the podcast. You might know him as the author of um, a very, very famous book, uh, The Pragmatic Programmer. That's a book I know that uh, a lot of us know and love. So I had the honor of talking to him. We talked about his book. Um, Pragmatic programmer, but also pragmatic thinking and learning, which was quite awesome. And if you did not yet get enough of my live streams, I'll be live tomorrow, October 23rd at 10 a.m. Central Time with uh, the data professor himself. I'll be live streaming with, uh, with China, and I'm excited for that. Uh, so be sure to tune in for that. And also, um, if you haven't, uh, make sure you go back and listen to the Comet ML office hours I did on Wednesday. I know it's not released as part of the podcast anymore, but they're still live streamed on YouTube. And uh, the YouTube video is there for you to check out. Uh, we had Vin coming on the show. Uh, it's pretty much just me and Vin the entire time. So I got to uh, interview him uh, again, pretty much for the podcast. So uh, I'll, I'll do my best to get that episode kind of pulled uh, and, and, and maybe add to the queue to the podcast. But I'm super excited to be here today. Hopefully you guys are as well. Um, yeah, so let's get into this, man. What's your favorite data science shortcut, hack, or trick that you found uh, just magical that once you learned it you're like oh my god this is amazing i wish everybody knew this let's start with serge then we'll go to uh ken and uh and vin after that by the way everybody tuning in on linkedin and on youtube i am monitoring so let me know if you got a question go ahead and uh and uh, type your question right there into the comments and if you guys have questions in the zoom room by all means let me know serge go for it You are on mute. Um, I love NumPy Where. Um, I'm a huge fan of I, I use it a lot. Um, it's amazing how much I can do with NumPy Where. <laughs> yeah. That's quite versatile. I was using that earlier this week, actually. Uh, what was life like before using uh, uh, NumPy Where? NumPy, NumPy. Oh, geez. Um, I guess... I would use some kind of apply with some kind of, or, you know, Lambda or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was complicated. <laughs> yeah. Uh, That's quite tedious. Well, Lambda is also great. You know, in yeah. some cases it's so easy to use. Also, I, I, I tend to put lambdas inside of brackets beside pandas, uh, data frames. And, and also when I do group buys, it's very easy to find what I'm looking for with the Lambda. Yeah, yeah, that's a good, good versatile combination for sure. I mean, with shit like that, why do you need SQL? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I can't go for it. So I actually took this in a different way. Like 
what is a hack that you liked to learn data science faster in the yeah. career path? Oh, that's great, man. Like anything um, you consider a hack, yeah. One of my favorite things to do is reviewing other people's code on Kaggle. So just going through notebooks and just kind of taking a peek into someone else's thought process, especially in the earlier stages or when learning something completely new, that for me, it completely supercharged the learning process because it was a lot of the things were outside of, of my realm of knowledge, right? And so to get exposure to those things, I can either look at the documentation or I can look at it when it's applied. And a lot of the techniques or a lot of the subtleties that other people used in practice were a little bit different. It gave me more context around a, a unique, you know, a, a unique function or whatever it might be. Uh, on the other side of that, something that that I use probably more than I should is just like pivot tables in pandas. Uh, that to me, like when you start out, you're like, oh, I'll just group by everything, and and the pivot table is so much easier for me to use than that. I use that in almost every exploratory analysis that I do. So I think those are two sides of different coins, but still answer the the same question, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. I was that I used the NumPy or sorry, Pandas pivot table earlier this week. I was doing a binary classification. Just wanted to quickly glean the distribution of the classes across a couple of uh, particular features, and that came quite in handy. Uh, I'm wondering, like you said, uh, you spend a lot of time reading other people's code. Do you think most people, when they are writing code, appreciate the fact that code is read more often than it is written? Uh, I, I mean, I don't think people appreciate that fact. And I think, like, from a learning perspective, it should be, it depends on what stage of learning, right? I'm 100% in the camp that you should do everything hands-on. You should work on as many projects as possible, whatever it might be. But sometimes that's just like taking other code that you've seen and experimenting with it, right? If I'm going through and I was starting and doing the Titanic data set, like I don't see it as a problem if if I'm like looking at someone else's code, I'm like copying the cells and I'm experimenting with like tuning the parameters or whatever it is, right? Like like how you actually train a model or how you look at the distributions of the histogram, it's not going to be like that different from person to person if you're doing the same analysis. Like you should be learning on the edge of what is like uh, of your understanding. And a lot of the time, what we do in data science is repetitive, right? We should be trying to work on the things through that repetition and copying code that is going to be different for us or going to be unique or that's going to change from analysis to analysis. Um, and a big part of that is just like reading and observing and exploring other different code that you haven't seen before. Love that, Ken. Thank you very much. A uh, question that we're kicking off with, my friends, uh, is what is your favorite data science hack, shortcut, life hack, whatever that you've learned? Could be in however you take that that phrase, however you, you mean it. Uh, let's go to Vin, let's go to Eric, and then if Marina, Russell, or Matt Blasa would like to uh, jump in, please do. And then, by the way, remember that we are taking questions. So uh, LinkedIn, YouTube, if you guys got questions, let me know. Yeah, I got two that are kind of sideways. One is TensorFlow Extended Stack. I know everybody loves PyTorch now, but uh, TensorFlow Extended like introduced me to the easiest way possible to get a model into production. I mean, and it's, you know, when you talk about data science hacks, not so much learning data science, but learning to make it useful and get it off your laptop and actually put it into production. <laughs> TensorFlow Extended is kind of one of those stacks where it's just really easy. And if you've never done it before, and like Kubernetes kind of scares you, 
extended is really easy to just it just works and the documentation's there and it's it's kind of awesome even though like i said it's it's fallen behind a little bit but still i like that as a hack and the other one's kind of weird but use an ide that makes warnings not just errors like anytime you see a weird squiggly line or a highlight or something like that chase it down because you're going to learn best practices in coding that you didn't even know existed and when it comes to data science i don't know why Worst practices come back to bite you so much harder in data science than they do, you know, even in building like really serious backend systems. But for whatever reason, worst practices have caused me no end of pain where if I had just chased the squiggly line or the yellow highlight or whatever it was, I'd have been done two days ago. So those are my kind of sideways hacks. Absolutely love that, man. Speaking of IDEs, dude, like, what's your what's your take on extensions? Because like, I've added some extensions, and then sometimes I just feel like they get in the way, and I just like I almost like coding just with with text, running it, and then just getting the error. What are your thoughts on that? You're savage, absolute savage. I think it's great. <laughs> <laughs> I I love IDEs because I'm old. I mean, you can see I've shortened my beard a little bit, so you don't see the gray anymore. But uh, like, I I remember Borland that that's that's how old i am and they used to be horrible and now ides are just so amazing and easy to use and so i i like i I use intellij you know plug shout out um i've used pycharm before i love every notebook there's ever existed somebody said vim and that kind of scares me a little bit i like i've used vim but i'll be honest vim intimidates me but yeah, I love add-ons, extensions, but at some point with like Python's the scary one because when you start getting your environment too complicated, you you like have to update your container every couple of days and it's just I can't yeah, Python's the one where too many extensions are just deadly. Yeah, I think that's what I had a friend that uh he a data he was a data scientist, really good data scientist. He would exclusively write his code in Vim. And I was like there's an easier way to do this. You know that, right? And he's like, I, this is just how I do it. This is how I'm always going to do it. And I was like, if it works and your work is good, do whatever you want. But Yeah, I, I want to learn how to do Vim. I know there's an audience member out there, uh, Dave uh, Mango, I believe. I think Matt as well. Both might be uh, Vim users. I think it's awesome. No, but keyboard shortcuts. Uh, Eric, what's your favorite uh, shortcut? hack whatever and then marina russell if you guys uh have a shortcut you want to share with us please do so i think the thing that came to mind for me is that made a huge difference for me just getting started was github desktop i think because you know we say like oh do projects oh put your stuff on github and like for me it was like how do i copy and paste an entire jupyter notebook into github like i don't get how to do that you know i didn't understand and then like somebody who had been through my master's program just before me was like dude github desktop change your life seven minute youtube video and now all of a sudden I could feel like a big kid because I could push stuff and pull stuff and fetch stuff and whatever, you know? And uh, now I, I don't use it so much anymore. I do still sometimes, but usually I just, now I just push through VS code or whatever, but regardless, I don't, I rarely like go to the terminal just to, 
push and pull and things like that. I do other stuff, but um, definitely GitHub desktop would be the thing I think that really helped me get my stuff off my computer and out where other people could see it so I could have better conversations and learn from others and share more. I absolutely love that, man. That's, a, that's actually a really, really good tip. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Kenji saying WSL2 has been fired from recently. Uh, and Ken, if I was you with that Z by HP laptop you got there, I'd, I'd put Ubuntu on that thing, man. Why you still got Windows on there? Uh, but I guess, yeah, it's a little bit of best of uh, both worlds. Wrestle, go for it. Wrestle the marina. Yeah. Uh, evening all. Um, so there's a lot of good uh, folk on the call here. So I'm, I'm going to go lo-fi with this. Uh, I, I think you, know, you, you guys can all come up with uh, far better uh, detail ones than me. But um, one of the best tags I've got is comment in your code. Don't forget to comment. You write code this week, have a weekend, forget about it, come back to it next week. At least if you're like me, you'll struggle to remember what you were doing, what the purpose was. So just add comments to your code. It's uh, one of the best hacks I can think of when I remember to do it. I still forget sometimes, uh, but I try to comment wherever I can. Yeah, that's um, that's one thing I do a lot of is I over comment my code, I feel like, but it's because I'm very, very forgetful. Uh, like there's certain aspects of the code where it's just kind of readable what it's, what it's doing, but for some of those tricky things, dude, yeah, I just over overcompensate with the, uh, with the comments. Uh, Marina, go for it. And uh, just uh, just for everybody who's uh, joining in, we're just talking about life hacks, uh, tips, tricks, whatever for data science, your favorite one. And if you have questions, wherever you're tuning in, do let me know. Uh, LinkedIn, YouTube, talking to you guys. Uh, and if you're on LinkedIn, please share this with your network. Go for it, Marina. Um, for me, I, I think uh, Ken already mentioned that is discover that you have like in Kaggle and other places, you have the whole code that you can go through and learn from somebody it's in, in other fields. You don't have that. And I felt even guilty using everybody, you know, like, you know, that's plagiarism or something. I, I just felt like this is amazing. You can get somebody's code and then go line by line and learning. Um, that, you know, to me was like opening um, my my mind but um probably the one that i enjoy the most is when i discover maybe like two years ago when it when it um like uh, maybe two years ago or something the merge i was so happy you know the same thing with pivoting like the tables but the merge you know like <laughs> i i i was tempted to make a you know t-shirt i love merge but <laughs> it will have been a little bit weird i i just found um you know when you discover some of these uh functions all of the sudden the the amount of things that you start doing um yeah like that was kind of like pivoting point for me yeah i wonder like like for forget at least right like i don't i don't get really super sophisticated with my git stuff i just push pull whatever clone i don't do like branches or you know stuff like that how how crazy have you you know been getting with that i wonder i wonder what's the difference between how a machine learning engineer uses Git versus how a data scientist uses Git. Uh, if anybody has any insights, go ahead and just uh, let me know because I would love to love to pick that apart. Vin, I'll just go to you first. Uh, Makiko actually has been on both sides of the fence as well. So I'd love to hear from, from Makiko. Uh, if you are available, Makiko, do let us know. How has your usage of Git changed since you've crossed from a data scientist to machine learning engineer? Well, for one thing, I use it. <laughs> I know everyone laughs, right? Um, 
so a couple things that are really nice about about GitHub. Um, first off, you can do pre-commit hooks. So for example, if you want to do things like if you check in any Python code or SQL code and you want to like lint it and nicely format it, you can do that through uh, pre-commit hooks with GitHub. Um, actions is really, really super nice uh, as like a lightweight CI/CD solution. You get some amount, some some number for free, and then you have to start paying for it. Um, but that's something that's like severely kind of overlooked, uh, especially if you're trying to do like a data science project. Um, I think that's super important. Um, the other nice thing too is you can set up template or uh, PR templates. So for example, um, if you really want to heavily make use of like pull releases or you want people to collaborate on your project, you can set up a nice little template where you can, uh, for example, specify like, you know, describe the change that you're making, you know, X, Y, Z, all this really cool stuff. Um, and it's integration with, or, you know, integrating GitHub with um, CI CD tools like Travis CI, uh, BuildKite, um, Circle CI is really pretty, it's almost seamless because a lot of times it's just setting up the right YAML file um, and then going like, yes, connect it to, um, you know, connect my account in Travis CI or someplace to, you know, my account in GitHub or this repo. Um, so there's a lot of cool things that, you know, you can kind of do there. I think one of the difficulties is that like learning Git and GitHub. <laughs> It's really hard because Git's kind of what we call like a leaky abstraction. So most people, the way they interact with it is they type in a bunch of random commands and uh, copy paste and pray to God that they're doing something right and they don't rebase their entire like repo. Um, my suggestion honestly is to look at the, um, the missing semester from MIT. So it's uh, a website that has a bunch of free videos of a class that uh, they teach every year where they basically, you know, cover topics uh, that are kind of like the meta skills of engineering. So for example, um, using command line and shell, um, doing bash scripting, using Git and GitHub, like um, uh, for example, like um, a make file, like why would you use a make file? Like, why do you see that in so many projects? So they cover kind of like what they call like the meta skills of engineering. And especially um, I think around data science or machine learning products, um, that is where it kind of gets tricky. And, um, you know, and the, but the beautiful part, so yeah. So if you're trying to learn like Git GitHub, um, I would really highly recommend the, the lecture on Git GitHub from um, the missing semester from MIT because they they really talk you through the underlying foundational principles. Because once you understand the principles, uh, then you can understand the commands, even as you know as shite as they are. Um, the other book I would recommend is I think advanced. It's like the advanced GitHub book. I, I gotta find it. Pro 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 Git. That book is also really fantastic. It walks you through it. Um, but honestly, I would say like that's like. I feel like that's the biggest sort of distinction between um, sort of people who use GitHub really, Git and GitHub very powerfully, which honestly it's mostly engineers versus like people who sort of kind of interact with it by poking at it. They kind of know that it's important and they understand version controlling is important, but they don't understand like all the features and why you'd use them. Um, but yeah, 
I know. Sorry, that's really that's, long. That's like that's like, really long. Ninety three percent of the stuff you're talking about, dude, I've never even heard of. Uh, so that, that is insane. Uh, and this missing semester from MIT has got a pretty interesting. It looks awesome. I mean, you got you know course review overview with the shell, shell tools and scripting editors like Vim, data wrangling, command line environment, version control, debugging and profiling, better programming, security and cryptography, potpourri. Uh, so yeah, just type in MIT missing semester and it'll show up thank you very much for that Mikiko. and damn you 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 can get man that's uh yeah it's honestly i'd say like the life hack for data science was when i left data science and went yeah. over to the dark side of engineering <laughs> <laughs> but i'd say the other life hack was um honestly like cutting out a lot of the noise in data science and machine learning and kind of making sure i understood the fundamentals because um yeah, like I, I feel like there's there's like certain roles where you do need to like you you should be reading papers, you should be keeping up the research, um, you should be on the edges and fringes of what's going on of innovation, data science, machine learning. But I feel like there's a lot of roles, or there are a lot of people who are in a certain stage in their career where they probably could use going back to the fundamentals. And honestly, my life hack has just been filtering out a lot of the newsletters. Um, which talk about, you know, uh, the, the next nearest thing from NeurIPS, right? And instead finding those are like really obscure learning resources that go back over the fundamentals such that I can now understand all the innovations that have come up and I can, I can further appreciate it because if you don't understand, well, if you don't conceptually understand linear algebra, you're not going to understand, you know, like neural nets. And if you don't understand neural nets, you're not going to understand the cool shit that comes out of NeurIPS, right? Like it's, it's, you, you have to have these foundational conceptual, like kind of places in your ladder to, to do the work. Speaking of ladders, you can't get to the top ladder without the bottom 18 of them. Right. I'm saying foundations, my friends, uh, then, uh, well, <laughs> the question I was asking was about Git. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess the, the difference between Git required Git knowledge between, I guess, ML engineers and, and data scientists. I came from like hardcore software development and Git was the sacred thing where there were a few people who were allowed to do Git and you needed to know like a basic amount or everyone clowned you until the day that you died. And so like I had that, you know, I don't know, mid-level understanding of Git because I was the, I don't know, third person on the call chain. So every once in a while I had to Google how to do something on Git. So I kind of remembered some of it. And I think that was most of us. And then getting into data science and there was no source control. Like everything in a notebook, it was weird. And after a couple of years, I got into some worse practices where I was on teams and I would let people do that. And so like Git's this thing that I came back to in 2015 realizing, oh yeah, data science needs best practices too. And that's kind of like the arc is if you, if you start going Git, you start going best practices. And I don't know what it is about Git, but it's like that gateway drug into doing things better and managing your code and working more collaboratively when it comes to actually building solutions and then solutions start being more reliable. Like Git's this amazing thing, but when it comes to Git knowledge, I've always been, I think, that third person down the call stacks. So I've never really had to be the Git Meister. And there's always been that one person 
who is, it seems like every dev shop and every ML engineering shop has like the Git deity who understands branching strategies and how to get it to do acrobatics so that I don't destroy things every time I check in something questionable. So it's, and I'm like the least questionable developer in most cases. So they've gotten really good at protecting main branches and even some of the experimental branches that you can't really mess with. And so I would say like, if you're on a team where no one understands Git, the easiest way to become indispensable and to ask for like a six figure raise is to become the Git meister, the, the deity of Git. And you'll have a job for life and you get promoted pretty quick because nobody wants to learn it. And that's, that's actually a good case for, for learning. Then when are you going to, you know, create a Git best practices for data science course, man, that's something I would definitely uh, enroll in. Sadly, I don't think I'm smart enough to do Like every time I think I understand Git, Somebody calls me up with a question. I'm like, I have no, wait, no, I know how to do that. Oh, wow. I just broke everything. You know, it's like that arc where I realize I don't know anything. And then I think, ah, no, no, no. Yeah, I do know this. And then, no, I don't know this. So I, I think that course would be horrible. Didn't say it was the gateway drug, gateway, GIT, gateway into technology. Mikiko um, Gofred then Mark commented that he loves Git. So I want to know why Mark loves Git. And then, Gina wants to talk about using Git because she was just using Git earlier today. Uh, but go for Makiko and uh, go to a market. I think it's one that. of these things where, like, so that you, you, know, you get some shops where they are just like, they're like nuts over everything DevOps and Agile and Scrum. And like in bigger tech companies, right? Like they have very, very mature sort of processes and structures. But it's one of these things where, like, just a little bit of process and structure and best practices, even if you're like a small like SMB or, or midsize or whatever, really is so beneficial. It is so beneficial because if you think about it, like, I and and I'm dating myself in the opposite direction in a way. Um, you know, I hear of some of these like hardcore engineers where they talk about a time like before Git, maybe sublime. I don't know sublime or, or what you know. There is there was a time where people used to email each other code. I mean, and and you know, God bless it. The way I look at it is if you are by not using the best tools and practices we have today, you are not honoring their sacrifice. Can you imagine what it was like debugging code, keeping track of who did what? I mean, you do get blame, you can figure out exactly who screwed that thing up. Imagine there was no get blame, right? So the way I look at it is if you learn from, you know, what the people before us suffered through, you are honoring that sacrifice. You know, you are, you are honoring it. And I think we should all do that. We should all learn from the people who went before us. We should integrate a little structure and process in our lives so that we're not emailing code to each other at like midnight, little snippets of jar files. Like, let's not do that. It's the first time anyone has ever given a commencement speech on a, a happy hour. Mikigo, thank you so much. That's very inspiring. Uh, Mark, go for it. And after Mark, we'll go to um, Gina. Yeah, so uh, my, my current job uh, at home was the first time I've, I've used Git for my job. And I think to myself, what was I doing before this point? Uh, because now I'm like scared to code without Git because I just lose something or completely mess something up. And there's like no way for me to easily go go back. 
Um, and like, also it's interesting because um, I do work both on the engineering side and also the data science side, um, kind of have my foot in both, both realms. And on the data science side, it's very basic. It's just like, we just don't want to mess up our code base and we have code review. It's just a gate to have code review before we merge it in. Someone else picks up the code. But on the engineering side, that's when Git really shined to me because it was just like, all right, we have a whole code base. I'm building a data product. I need implemented and connected to the code base. I don't feel scared anymore that I'm going to mess something up because I'll have to try really hard for, for me to crash the code base um, because of kind of the, the, the gates that Git has for it. But also the thing I really like about it is that it forces me to think about how I do my commits. So I want to do this chunk of logic first and then commit it. I'll do another chunk of logic first and then commit it. And so it really makes me think instead of writing these long, like monolith scripts, is actually thinking like, all right, I'm going to write this function. That's going to be a piece of logic. Or for this pull request, you know, I'm going to implement this change. And I may be distracted to do X, Y, Z, but I should make that into another pull request. Uh, so like, for example, like adding a new product feature versus like refactoring, um, keeping those things separate. So doing uh, essentially Git just forces me to be a better programmer. Now, I'm completely newish. I still feel newish to Geekingo. I've been using it for over a year now. There's so much. Like I was putting in the comments, like rebasing. Um, I, I always spend an hour just <laughs> learning how to, how to do it correctly because I always forget every single time. Or like when you're doing a, a large series of, um, of uh, pull requests, so I might have one Git and then say it runs like for a whole project that spans over months instead of having this giant um, code review where they have to review thousands of lines of code. You want to break it up into different uh, types of uh, pull requests. Well, that was my first time doing it. And so I layered it on top of ranches and then I had to do a, um, a rebase and ended up having to do it like rebase like a thousand lines <laughs> because it was, I messed it up somewhere. So um, there's definitely ways you can fall into the trap of like, oh yeah, I totally did this wrong. But if you stick to the basics from a data science perspective, it'll take you extremely far than not having gits. And then when you get to the scary stuff, um, just know there's like a whole bunch of online resources to help steer you away. And at the very least, they just won't merge it and you'll be okay. Absolutely love this, man. Like this is a really make me feel insecure about my git, my git knowledge. Uh, Gina, go for it. And then Gina, after this, uh, you have a leftover question from last week. Do you want to get into that after your comment? Sure. On sure. Would be happy to do that. Um, yeah. So a um, couple comments first on Git. Um, gosh, when I started the data science bootcamp, we were using it, but not in a very uh, useful way. And um, so then I'm like, okay, at some point I'm like, I need to get more serious about using this resource. And um, so I have kind of a, well, it's not, it's sort of a horror story, I guess. So it's like, you think, well, what could, what could really go wrong? <laughs> Which sounds a little crazy, but um, I had a big project and I ended up um, screwing it all up because I guess I didn't really know what I was doing on Git. And so it was like a cautionary tale and I'm like, okay, I need to do something to upskill. So I posted a link in the chat for um, a Udemy course on Git, which is um, done by Colt Steele, who many of you probably know if you've done Udemy courses. Um, I think he's quite good. I think the course is quite good. So that may be helpful for people. 
Um, yeah, there's a, a shout out to Cold Steel in the chat from Eric Sims. Um, so that so when I did that, I'm like, okay, I'm getting a better handle on this thing. Um, I then had a uh, my capstone project, which I was using Git locally um, before, you know, pushing it out to GitHub. And one thing I noticed it was a big project, and I noticed that the notebooks kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, even though I wasn't adding stuff. And um, eventually, I realized, having done some Google searches, that um, the problem was that. I guess Git doesn't deal very well with um, with these kinds of revisions because I think it literally saves right. It saves everything. It saves all your graphs, and every time you you know run a uh, you know just to check out your data frame, you run that. Um, it uh, yeah, I think it saves all of that. So point is that the notebook was getting huge, and it would take forever to to actually. Um, like even just loaded on the computer. And I can't even remember what code I had to write, um, but you have, I actually had to do something within, there's some code you can put in to get using command line, but then also basically um, pretty much um, I would, you know, restart the kernel before saving it. So basically that would take out all of that stuff and the notebook would come back down to being a very reasonable size. So I, I kind of put that out there because this is data science related, and um, I think that that would be um, useful information for people who are looking to use Git. And also, someone commented in the comments, I feel seen, and so do I, because I'm thinking, am I the only person who's struggling with this? So it's really fascinating to hear other people's stories and, you know, and experiences with Git. Um, and... Uh, and yeah, I'm sorry, I kind of, I, I was working, I was creating a Git repo and kind of updating it, right? Literally as the happy hour started. And so uh, that's why um, I wanted to get here on time, but I, I joined late. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Just at the uh, right moment, right when we we're talking about yes, it. Yes, I, I pulled up the LinkedIn first and then I'm like, oh wait, they're talking about Git, how timely. Yeah. I'm curious uh, to know if anyone has any thoughts on that or if, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure everybody here's got some to say about that Git stuff because uh, it. I mean, everybody in the chat is talking about the terminal. I just want to share mine real quick though. Just, you know, right there. Uh, but Gina, you did have a question from last week that was really good that I would love to get to. Uh, whenever you're ready for that, let me know. Russell says another good lo-fi hack that he has. Uh, which is a good one that nobody has mentioned yet is um, keep a library of code snippets that you can later reuse. So helper functions and, and things like that. That is extremely critical. Um, Greg Kokio is in the building. Greg, what's up? Eric Katonga is in the house. Eric, what's going on, my friend? Auntie, good to see you. Uh, Mark, uh, sorry, uh, Matt Blaza as well. Let us know if you guys got questions. Um, if you guys got a question, man. Like, let me know. I have no clue where to take it now. Um, Actually, so let me yes. just drop three. So three things that probably most people didn't know they could do with Git. Number one, uh, if you had a bug sneak into your code at some point, you can actually find that, by the way. You could potentially find it um, by searching through like your commit history or the logs. The second one is you can compare like your different Git commits 
also to see like what changes were made. And you can compare like commits from like many different histories, right? You can kind of do that already in the GitHub UI, but you can do that like in the command line. Um, and also you can make like your commit trees too, which is really nice. When you first started like doing all this crazy stuff that talking about gimmicky code, were you like scared that you might break something or did you first practice on just like your own like personal repository with just, you know, random yeah, I think stuff? I, yeah. I think I've always been scared of making mistakes, right? Because like that's the worst thing. And I mean, like, so I, okay. <laughs> so like I've seen someone get fired for making, uh, for merging some bad stuff into a main code base and all that. So I'm going to be honest, that really like made me afraid to do stuff. Like I was like, Oh my God, if I move in any direction, I could get fired, <laughs> you know? And it, I, I think, I mean, first off, like in retrospect, when I think about it, um, it it's one of these things where like when people do stuff with like a code base or whatever, um, you should never see it as like instead of kind of blaming a person we should always like introspect about could the process have been better can we set up structures in which people can thrive without like feeling like they're making mistakes right um and i think the way a, a team treats their code base will in some ways sort of tell you the culture of that team and company right um because if you think about it like now there are ways to, for example, in GitHub, you can enable like branch protection of the default branch of the main branch or the default branch. Like you can enable that so that no one can commit to it without getting a, a proper review, right? So there are checks in place. It's just will the team or the organization in a way step up to say, like, hey, you know, this was an accountability thing, right? For example, like the was a Toy Story movie that got deleted twice in its entirety at Pixar, everyone's, yeah. So everyone has like their story of when they screwed up the code base, right? Or the database. That's a very famous one because um, li they literally had to repatch it from different servers that people had. But that entire movie was deleted twice. Now with that being said, apparently the, the DBA was not fired. No one knows who it is. There's never been a whisper of a name because they looked at and they went, look, we were hypothetically supposed to have been backing everything up and we didn't. And this is not like one person's fault. This is the responsibility accountability of an entire team. Right. So I was a little bit worried, but the nice thing is that once you kind of learn the underpinning, so for example, almost nothing in Git is destructive. You have to really be intentionally destroying code to screw up the way the Git model works is it's additive. So unless you use like a special command that you don't understand, it will just keep adding versions, right? So you can always go back and you can roll stuff back. You can go back, you can, um, and I've done this before, right? We were running updates on a bunch of projects. Um, and that's like one part of like the whole MLN, GML ops role, right? We were rolling updates on a bunch of like models in production. And we, in some cases, the initial update didn't go well. So we had to roll, we had to roll it back to a prior commit. Um, and then we just redid it and it was fine. Right. Um, but that's what having like a proper structure and process will enable you to do. And also understanding that underlying concept. Most things tend to be sort of, as long as you kind of version control it, 
most things tend to be just additive. Um, so once you understand that, it's like you can just kind of do whatever you want with it to some to some degree, right? Um, but yeah, so I, I would say like in general, it does seem like sometimes there's a lot of gatekeeping on the engineering and data science machine learning side. I do think that in general, people should not be so worried about making mistakes. If you do make a mistake, understand that there probably should have been a process or a structure to prevent you from making that colossal of a mistake. Um, yeah. Thank you very much, Pakiko. Uh, let's go to Gina for the next question. And then if anybody else has a question, please do let me know. Uh, LinkedIn, if you guys are watching, there's like nine of you watching on LinkedIn. I should probably do a better job of actually like informing people when I'm going live. Can, I, can I ask a quick question? Yeah. 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 While we're on the GitHub question, what's the difference between GitLab and GitHub? Like, I know one is open source. GitLab is open source. GitLab just went uh, public. Um, and why yeah. would a company choose one over another or an individual choose one over another? A good question that let's see if my understanding is correct so git itself is just the language instead of uh processes but what i know GitLab is just like and github are just software kind of on top of that but i'd love to hear from somebody who actually knows uh vin or Kiko or yeah i think GitLab is open source or something like that when github is more governed um but Mikiko. i'm not too sure just want you to understand but I think enterprise uses both. Um, you go, you go yeah, I, yeah. So, so gets the command line utility. Um, that's that. Yeah, uh, gets the command line utility that was partially developed by Linus Tor Torving, who is the father of Linux. Um, you know, that was one of his great contributions. GitHub is the man. It's like the hosted managed version of it. Um, and same with GitLab and a lot of these other sort of things like so the flavor is is the enterprise sort of offerings that they offer typically um why would one use one or the other i'm not sure to be honest a lot of times it's just it's a question of essentially like what integrations does it have with like the ecosystem of tools around it um a lot of times i think if you're someone who's like looking to do your own like personal projects github is still the best way to go um, just for a number of reasons, like it's just the home of open source. Um, if you're like an enterprise company or a startup, there might be other reasons why you would pick GitLab over GitHub. So for example, in one startup I was at, we use GitLab instead of GitHub. Um, and part of it was, I think it offered some better like security and also enterprise integrations. Um, but yeah, and the reason why it's also, I think, good for people to get more practice with the understanding like Git as a command line utility, is because in many ways it it helps you understand other command line utilities, like the goods and the bads. Um, and there are a lot of good ones and there are a lot of bad ones. <laughs> um, but yeah. Greg, does that answer the yeah. question? Yeah. All right, Thank awesome. you. Yeah, let's go to uh, Gina's question. And if anybody else has a question, please do let me know. Uh, just comment right here in the chat. I'll add you to the queue. Or if uh, anyone on LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitch, if you guys got questions, let me know. Gina, go for it. Thanks. Um, so this is a uh, back in career corner kind of question. And so I look forward to your uh, thoughts and advice. So um, 
So for anyone, um, some people are on here who weren't uh, when I introduced myself previously. I'm, let's say I'm mid-career. People talk about dating themselves, and I think maybe I'm a tad bit older than uh, some of the folks who are, uh, you know, who are mentioning that. And so um, career shift, uh, I've done a you know, fair amount of analytical work in the past. Um, and then I decided I wanted to shift to data science because the tools have become so um, robust. I mean, it's way, way beyond, you know, using Excel and even, you know, some of the plugins for Monte Carlo and things like that. And um, so now I've finished my boot camp. I've done some additional projects and so on. And I'm looking to get a job. One of the things that I've heard is that some people will say, oh, you're an experienced professional. I've done consulting. I've managed teams, et cetera. Um, you, you, know, you, could, you, know, you could be a great fit for a, um, like a data analytics or data science team. Now, obviously, it's going to depend on the place. Google, probably not, obviously because you're going to need someone who has so much experience. In many other um, uh, companies, though, it could be a good fit. You know the tools. You don't necessarily have to, you know, you're not going to be necessarily coding all day. But a key thing is being able to communicate with uh, managers and folks outside of that team, being able to kind of translate the technical aspects or the, uh, you know, the data science um, uh, tools, you know, explaining those in a way that um, non-technical people can understand. And having worked in consulting and having worked with some uh, pretty senior level people, uh, there's, I can tell you there, there are times when it's really helpful to have somebody who has that kind of experience. I would love to hear from this group what you all think, um, since so many of you are, are and have been data scientists and companies large and small. And I'd you know, really love to hear your thoughts on this idea that, oh, you could be great in this kind of a role, you know, or is it a kind of thing like, hey, man, you're starting from the bottom. This is just the way it is. Go get yourself an entry level position and, um, you know, you're going to need to develop those skills more in, a, in a, you know, whatever company you end up working for. I hope that that um, question is, uh, at least, uh, you know, I hope that was clear. Uh, happy to clarify if anyone, um, you know, yeah. would like me to. Yeah, let's go to uh, Greg. So I hand up and if anybody else would like to jump in, please do. I think after Greg, let's go to Vin. Uh, and then if anybody else wants to jump in, maybe Ken or hey, Kiko would love to Gina, you guys. I, j- I just have a quick thing for you to help you change your perspective. You mentioned Google and you say Google, maybe not you will be surprised how many teams inside of tech teams do not know anything about data analytics or stuck in Excel doing the basics. So do not discount yourself, especially these big dogs. That makes you scared. Find a team within these big teams. These teams are, these are conglomerates. They have so many departments. They are not necessarily as advanced as the whole organization. And they need people like you with deep experience, say in accounting, who bring in a new analytics, you know, knowledge or uh, experience to the team so you can help them leverage the tools that the organization has developed from the inside. So you bring your experience, you learn their tool, 
you help them adopt their own tools. They are struggling. You need to find these small teams, those, you know, isolated siloed team to bring your experience to them. Do not be scared of the so-called tech team because you will be surprised how many of them are archaic, like working in an archaic way. So um, change your perspective in that. Do some research. Find the teams that connect with the experience that you've had and then bring in another set of eyes because they need your help. So don't don't be afraid about the tech. Remove the tech element. Just look for the departments that can find value in what you can bring. Thank you, Greg. That is so that's so kind of you and um, such a great insight. And I just want to say also, I heard uh, Greg. I heard you on the Super Data Science podcast some uh, what was it some months ago, and I was just like, oh my god, I saw this guy in the happy hour. Like, wow, um, such a such a fantastic story you have. And um, yeah, so I really, really appreciate your thoughts. And I hadn't thought about it in that way. I'm not so intimidated by the Googles and all that. My, um, you know, my degrees are from fancy pants schools. So, you know, I'm not worried too much about that. But at the same time, right, you know, because they're always in the press about some amazing thing that they've done and they can recruit. Uh, from pretty much everywhere. It's like, you know, do I even try? I don't know. But you've given me uh, some a, another way of looking at it. So I thank you for that. Absolutely. Greg, Greg, thank you very much. By the way, Greg was also on my podcast, which you can listen to, and on Ken's podcast, I believe. Uh, let's go to Vin after this. And by the way, dude, like, I mean, for the record, I'm 38 years old. I got my first job in data science, like as an actual data scientist when I was 35. So what? Uh, yeah, you so. you do not look at all, my man. Dude, I, <laughs> <laughs> I dye my beard. Trust me, there's a reason why I dye my beard and frequently get haircuts because otherwise it's just gray everywhere. Uh, well, you know, better living through chemistry, right? We do what yeah. we can. Cheers to that, uh, Vin. Go go for it. I gotta. I'm gonna kind of blow up a little inside secret about non-tech companies and senior leadership in non-tech companies. And I'm going to use Eric because, you know, he's got the self-confidence that I can say this about him. If somebody in the C-suite has Eric walk into a meeting and start talking about a project, there's just like this thing in the back of their mind where they're like, nope, too young. And so there is ageism and this is non-tech company or yeah, non-tech companies and tech companies, they're used to like 15 year olds walking in and, you know, coming up with great ideas. But in legacy business models, legacy companies, when they see somebody with experience, with obvious capability that's come from an extensive body of work, years, you know, decades, preferably, there's a different level of trust. There's a different relationship that gets built. And you're going to have that example, or you're going to have that, uh, you know, that ability to walk into multiple rooms and be credible, which is huge. And tech teams need that badly. They don't really know, for the most part, exactly how valuable someone with over 20 years of experience is until they have that person in their team. And it's, you know, it's an evolution of trying to teach people that, you know, your tech career doesn't end at 10 years. Like that's, yes, you become a senior, whatever. And then it's like you fall off a cliff and that doesn't happen. You, 
you actually get better and better and better. And typically people in different careers transition into any type of engineering career that you can think of. And so what you're going to find your biggest value is that body of work that you've done. And you're going to just have a story for every problem they run into. You're going to have a, well, you know, we did this here. I saw that happen a few times. Here's what we did to solve it. And every single time you do that, like your worth climbs tremendously. And so you're going to be an amazingly capable data scientist. You're going to bring, you know, a strong analytics background and strong analytics skill set. You're going to bring domain expertise, but you're also going to bring steadiness. And I think that's the underrated capability of people as they get into their 30s, 40s, 50s, and even 60s. There's a level of steadiness that just keeps coming in where you can take a team out of crisis mode in about two months, just with your presence, just by asking the questions that most people that are young are too scared, you know, to really break the, well, we've got to get this done next week. And somebody with your capability comes in and goes, no, we don't. No, no, no. Trust me. I've done this before. No. So this is how it works. And that's the invaluable piece. And it's hard when you're interviewing to really explain to companies and to teams where you could be the oldest person on the team, or you know there could be somebody maybe two layers of leadership up who's the same age as you are, but they've really never had the experience on their team and the benefits of it. And if you can, in the interview, drop a few gems, drop a few of those stories you know, where they ask you about your experience, ask you about what you did before, drop a gem or two, because that changes people's perception when they hear that in an interview and they go, oh God, none of us knew that. <laughs> None of us would know how to handle that situation that way. And you really do, you find that you, you get a job for reasons you didn't think you'd get the job for, and they'll hire you for senior level positions, even though from a capability standpoint, you may not feel like you're qualified for it. You really are because you bring so much more. And so look at, you know, yeah, you have maybe two years of three years of, you know, four years of, and they're looking for eight years of, and it's like, no, 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 you will have all of this other stuff that comes with you and it's so valuable. So go for higher step roles than you think you might be qualified for because you are qualified. You bring a lot of experience to the role and definitely don't underplay that. Don't feel like that's something you want to hide. Obviously, on your resume, you can't put everything you want to on it or it'd be 35 pages. But when you get to the point where you're talking to people, introduce it, bring it into the conversation, find ways to talk about the pretty awesome things you've done and the things that you've learned that they probably don't know. Thank you so much, Vin. That is, gosh, that makes me feel so much better, I have to tell you. Um, yeah, and I have a lot of thoughts on that. It's just I guess the next step is how do you how do you find those people? I mean, I guess through networking. It's just that it, I, I have trouble with that, trying to figure out, you know. I mean, I look at job postings because it just kind of gives you a sense of the market. But obviously, we've all heard that, you know, whatever the stat is, who knows, 70, 80% of jobs are not posted at all. It's through relationships or the job is created for somebody, essentially. So um yeah, it's how do I find those folks? Like you said, once you get in and talk to them, that's a you know that's where it it can really happen. You're, but you're looking for companies that are struggling. 
You want to find mm-hmm. some companies that are struggling because they're looking for different solutions. That's okay. really what you want to see is any company, any group, anything, you know, in that direction where you look at it and you go, oh, these people are struggling. They're having some challenges. Maybe they're having some churn because when you sit down with them, they're ready for something different. And so when you send in a resume, the person reading it all of a sudden is like, yeah, I think maybe it's time for somebody like this to come in and help us out. And so anytime that you have a different type of skill set or a sideways skill set, the easiest way to find companies is to look for companies in trouble because <laughs> they're, they are suffering challenges. And if they've hurt enough, they're ready to do something else. They, they, they will not continue to push their head through the same wall that didn't, you know, that didn't move last time. And so you have greater opportunities, especially with your experience and problem solving history to really connect with the hiring manager through your resume, through the problems that you've solved that they're having right now. That's fascinating. Thank you so much, Ben. That um, I hadn't thought about that either. You know, in some ways I might be like, oh, I want to stay away from a struggling company. You know, don't want to end up on a, sh- a sinking ship. But um, gosh, that's a, a fascinating and a whole new way of looking at it. So thank you so much. Let's go to uh, Ken and then Mark. And if anybody else has questions, do let me know. I just have uh, LinkedIn, YouTube. Let me know. Go for it, Ken. Yeah, I, I will say I agree with almost everything been said there. I will say that, Gina, I, I kind of am incli- inclined to agree with your sentiment there. If, if a company is struggling, it might be because they're doing a lot of the same things over and over again, and they can't learn from their mistakes. And so... I mean, there are definitely companies that are struggling that want to go the other direction, that want to change, but those changes usually come with a change in management, right? So if you've seen that this company has recently like hired a new person and they're building new infrastructure and they're and they're they're like actively doing things to change how the direction they're going, then I think that that's a really good sign. If the company is just kind of spiraling, you're talking to people on the teams and and they're using antiquated software, they're using XYZ, then you know, we're, we're in one of those positions. Um, something I would ask you about this specific situation of finding these companies is how would you approach that like a data scientist, right? This is, this is the domain you want to work in. This to me is a problem that can like, can be solved with analytics. And, you know, the way I would solve that problem using analytics versus how you would solve that problem versus analytics versus how someone else in this group would is, is different. But applying like that mindset and philosophy, it's like a really great way to practice and start applying your all the skills that you've learned through the bootcamp through these other things um, to, to what you're doing. You know, an example of like the interview process and doing that, not necessarily exploratory like what you're what you're working on, is one of my friends. Every interview, every application he sent out, he he tracked it, marked everything down. He did this over the course of three three interview cycles, right? So one was. Uh, when he was entry level, one when he was more senior, and one when he was like a like a very senior data scientist now, right? And what he learned is that different approaches at those different stages had very different results, right? Now he can apply through job boards, job postings, wherever it is, and he has very good success. Early in his career as an entry level data scientist, absolutely no success with that path, right? And you might find that with your specific situation, right, where you have really good experience from before, maybe you're a little newer to the pure technical data science stuff, that a specific channel of reaching out to people uh, is going to lead to a higher percentage of like 
good opportunities that you find. You might also want to think about, okay, well, how do I find companies? How can I identify companies that fit a mold that I might be interested in? That might start with just like collecting companies that you're inspired by on a day-to-day basis, right? It doesn't matter if they have postings, whatever it is. And then maybe it's a little difficult to scrape LinkedIn, but like going on Glassdoor, scraping a bunch of information on job postings or descriptions of companies and looking for keywords and and creating a topic model or, or, or you know, like that, that, that to me is something that is so overlooked when people are approaching this, this process. It's like, we have these sick tools, but we're approaching these same problems with our like human, I want to get a job perspective rather than our like the toolkit that we used to analyze problems exactly like this. So I would say like, Hey, like, you know, you've, you've learned these great skills try and apply them in this area. Worst case, you have like a really cool project that you can show these employers about how you found found out about them, right? I love that. Thank you so much. Um, that's so helpful. And, and a couple of things you mentioned, and I will um, uh, give props out to um, uh, the book. Uh, Nick Singh was on, I think, like a month ago or something. And I did end up buying his book and, uh, you know, got immediate value out of it. So I was really pleased. And of course, he talks about, you know, really the outreach and, you know, obviously the low. Yeah, there it is. Mark has it. Uh, the, uh, you know, Ace the Data Science or Ace the Data Science interview, I think is what it was called. And um, yeah, and he talks about obviously the, the low hit rate that you're going to get most of the time applying for job board stuff. Unless, you know, that was a really great point you made, um, Ken, that, yeah, once you're once you've got all of that stuff that, you know, the the wish list or whatever it is that they put out there, not everyone, but many. Uh, Once you have all of that, you're the purple squirrel, as uh, some people like to say, you're just kind of this other unicorn, Um, then sure, you can apply online. But yeah, I really um, appreciate your thoughts on that, Ken. That's really helpful. Thank you, Ken. Ken, I'm going to link a blog post for my friend that I was describing about his process in a little bit here, if I can find it. Yeah, absolutely. I'll make sure I'll post it on uh, LinkedIn too, and then uh, we'll we'll I'll put the uh, all the links into the show notes as well. Can um, talking about antiquated software. If the company is still using a Microsoft Access database, then run the other way. Um, shout out to Nick Singh. Nick, uh, thank you for sending the book my way. I'm super excited to have you on the show. We'll be going live at some point in uh, November. Keep an eye out for that. Um, uh, then let's go to uh, Mark. And then uh, Matt Blaza has a question. Um, Greg, do you have a question too? Do you want to add to, to the queue or do you want to comment on this? No, so, something I wanted to to say real quick to, yeah, to, yeah. to Gina, but Mark, go ahead. Yeah, let's go Mark uh, and then Greg. Um, just quickly building on Ben's point about finding like a company who's like struggling. I put a link in there for the STARS model, not to be confused with the STAR framework for interviewing, but the STARS model is um, it basically breaks down various uh, types of companies and where there are in current stages and like what strategies you apply for it and like how you kind of build and buy in um, for those type of things. So like using that, when you kind of do like understand do your due diligence about a company, you can look at that, those models and see like, how do I frame my messaging to show the value I can bring to this company? So that's really helpful. And then um, going back to like the job posting, I actually like do not like job postings. I don't apply to them because I feel like I'm just screaming into a void and nothing's really happening from there. I I go by the mindset if like I'm a company of one and I'm selling my services out to the market and specifically companies. Um, and so essentially 
Um, I treat myself like as if I'm a sales director, SDR, um, and I'm creating like pitches, um, kind of cold calls in a way. And so what I do is I actually don't focus on the job postings. I focus on what companies are working on really cool things that align with my interests, um, understanding the companies and their pain points and how I can add value to them, and then finding the decision maker on LinkedIn. So you have the hiring manager, the recruiter, whoever it may be. Um, a tool I love to use is Crunchbase, but that's because I focus on startups. If you're not interested in startups, that probably might be the best approach. Um, but essentially, that's that's what I do. And so I, I will identify um, those key decision makers, especially if they're posting on LinkedIn, because then I get to read, like, what are the pain points they're talking about? What are some things they're really interested in? Maybe they're even making a post about a position that they're hiring on. But essentially, I, I just reach out to, um, again, this is like uh, to decision makers, and I don't even know they have a job posting. I just say like, hey, name's Mark. I give a quick pitch of saying like, Here, here's my background, here's my skills. This is why I think aligns to your company really well. These are the, thing, the problems I think you're working on that I read based on your blogs. And this is where my skill set fits into that. Um, here's my resume attached. And then I don't even say like, do you want to meet? I say, I would love to talk with you to learn more about these uh, potential opportunities. And many times, like I've, I've had, had people say like, oh yeah, like we haven't even have a job posting out, but we're actually about to put it out in a couple of weeks. Like, let's talk. And like, there you go. I just got ahead of every single person that was just about to apply to the job online on the portal. Um, and also the other thing too, is that other times they're like, wow, that's really great. Um, we don't have a position, but we'll definitely keep you in mind. Boom, now I have a channel for a decision maker later on if they do have a position. So I just built up my network. And because we're connected on LinkedIn now, and I'm posting on LinkedIn constantly, they're, they're, I'm on their mind all the time. And so I've had people come back and be like, hey, we have a position now. And so I just get out of the trap of the screaming into the void game and just go straight to the decision maker because um, I'm just going to spoon feed them all the amazing points of why they should hire to me so they can just repeat it back to their team and make their job as easy as possible because hiring is really hard. Mark, absolutely love that. That's a great mental model. Think of yourself as a company of one, as an SDR for yourself. Excellent process and uh, magnificent use of persuasive language, like the way you frame that at the end there. Not uh, was like to get on call, but when can we meet? I love that. Thank you very much. Let's go to Greg. And then after Greg, we are going to go to uh, Matt Blaza's question. And if anybody else has a question, please do let me know. Greg, go for it. Yeah, I wanted to add a little bit of uh, uh, on top of what everyone said is to not forget the your the power of storytelling, right? So to what uh, Vin was saying too uh, about your experience, you know, uh, uh, detailing how you would solve a problem based on your experience is one. But where you can add that 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 you know like that cherry on top is by saying something like. Look, if I if, if if for example you were targeting Google, for example, uh, you're targeting some some non-tech uh, position, uh, you could say, you know, I've solved this business case using XYZ tools. However, with Google tools, I could use BigQuery and uh, Data Studio to kind of show the results to my stakeholders and things like that. So you showcase that you're able to understand not only your problem-solving skills. But also, you can relate to the tools that are used internally to solve these same issues. So that kind of builds the bridge between, you know, your experience and how to solve issues. And also, you can relate or you have a high level understanding of the tools that they have on the in inside 
uh, to solve these, these 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 jobs. And you can do the same thing, that little cherry on top, uh, doing an interview as well. So right now that you're not in, you can use the power of storytelling through your portfolio to have that story lined out. And also, you know, everything else everyone says about finding people who will look at that story, who will look at that portfolio, you just apply it. Randomly selecting someone to take a look at your portfolio and then ask them for feedback or even, um, you know, con connect you with someone who may be hiring or just simply you looking at, you know, non-tech positions that may need some analytical uh, piece. There are a lot of program manager positions that require some sort of ability to perform some analysis. That's your way in. A lot of these companies too, that are not like really older companies, like legacy companies that I call them that are like kind of stuck in one way, they promote like cross movement, right? So you can come in and as a program manager, you showcase analytical skills. And next thing you know, within a year, you transfer to an analytics uh, position because you showcase that you are so good at it, right? So find an entry point and then move around but be very selective on which company and look at the company culture and to, to determine how you can move around. Thank you. That's great. Thanks so much, Greg. I, I, I'd say, uh, well, I will say thank you to Mark, even though he had to jump off, but these are fantastic um, points. I so appreciate it. Yeah, Greg, thank you so much, Gina. That was a lot of excellent advice. Have no fear. It will be re-released on Sunday as well as the transcript. So you can download transcript, take notes and, and get some action steps in place. Let's go to uh, uh, Matt Blaza's question. Ken, see you later. Thank you for uh, swinging by. Go for it, Matt Blaza. Yeah, so I mean, I hear a lot on the show all the time about like how to apply for like external jobs, like what we need to set up for the portfolio. Um, I'm just curious about like what it takes for like more of an internal position. So to give you a background, basically at my company, we're starting to look for more like, I'm not, for a few more data scientists. And I was always wondering, like, for everyone's experience, what, what kind of steps do you guys take to apply for the positions? I mean, obviously know your manager and whatnot, but is it like a project portfolio or like, what do you usually do to help you increase your chances to get that kind of position? For just a little bit more context real quick, uh, Matt, what's your current role at the company? I'm currently a governance analyst. Uh, but I am working with them on the data, the current data scientist for um, with machine learning models to govern that and write out the documentation. The data governance type of, type of role. Uh, Vin, go for it. Like right off the bat, man, that sounds like a really good like ML ops kind of background to me. But uh, go for it, Vin. I think the the biggest thing to figure out is do they have a process? Because a lot of places have, you know, a pretty well documented process for this is how you get to this role. They have a career path. They have, you know, some sort of transition plan. They have a training program. They have, you know, you talk to this person, express your interest, get your manager's approval. And so there's got to be some logistical process to go through. And that's usually where you want to start. Because if you start going outside of the process, you may find out that, yeah, you're qualified, but you didn't do all the, you know, the hoop jumps that you needed to. And so you're going to have to wait until next cycle or something like that. So, you know, step one, figure out what the process is and make sure that you go through something like that. You've already got, it sounds like an in because you're working with the team. You probably know the people that are going to be hiring you. And 
So step two for me really is if you've already got that network, just start asking them directly, you know, what would it take for me to transition into this role? What do you want to see from me? Because I'm interested. I think I'm qualified, but you're obviously going to make the final judgment. So what do you want to see from me? And then you have to listen really carefully to that response because it's either going to, it's going to be, you know, between two sides of the pendulum. One, I have no idea, but they're going to say it using a whole lot of words that make it sound like they do. And on the other side, they're going to give you really specific advice where do this, 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 and this, and I'll hire you. And if you have somebody who doesn't know what they need, it's going to be a whole lot harder. And you may even find yourself teaching them how to create a career path for other people to get into, you know, an internal promotion because some data, data science teams have no idea how someone outside of their group would even get the capabilities to be part of their team. And the only way they ever think about growing the team is hiring externally. And so you may be responsible for creating a little bit of this yourself and you have to figure out how open they are to that. So, you know, when you go through an internal promotion, you really have to, you have to gauge culture almost as much as you do, what's it going to take, uh, you know, for me to get hired, what capabilities do I need in order to do this job successfully? So don't forget both sides, you know, and ask, don't, don't be shy about it. Don't be coy. Just say, look, I want the job. What do I got to do? Okay. Thank you. Yeah, they did mention they did mention a few requirements, which was come up with like some use cases, and then uh, Matt, I think they also mentioned a master's degree too. But I'm in the middle of it, so. Greg, I feel like you might have some good tips here, uh, just based on the previous advice you had given to. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, I think I think Vin uh, nailed it. Right, so it's it's about figuring out one um, what is. What is the job responsibility? What are the what are the tasks that you have to fulfill to excel at this position? One, and um, how is it being done today? Uh, what is the current process? And then, uh, how can you marry it with what you've done right now in your current position? Uh, leveraging your own data, your own processes, can you build the bridge? And I have a framework for that too to ask those questions when you're ready. Uh, if you're not familiar with the team and you're interested then you read the job position and the requirements. And then you kind of, you know, in your own words, kind of build a bridge in terms of what you've done in yourself and line them up. Like, so I've, I've solved this, this, this. Um, and um, I do believe that performing these tasks within my position is correlated to what you're looking for. Can you tell me what are the gaps? What am I missing here? At the end of the day, what you want to surface is what are the gaps, right? And it seems like you already have that. Um, and then, you know, uh, understand whether you need to, what to do to close these gaps, right? Um, you've mentioned some of them, which is uh, a degree, which is kind of, you know, I don't know. It's uh, It depends on the company. Uh, but as soon as you find what these gaps are, then you actively work to close them. And you will find that most of the time, um, in, in your current position, you will find an opportunity to uh, perform a task or apply a process that is the same as the position that you were trying to go. A quick example I can give you right now, um, I am a, a program manager, like a risk manager right now. I'm trying to move to a product manager position, but I work like a product manager. Uh, everything I do, the way I end the projects, 
in, in the way I handle uh, my my processes. Um, I work with you know my stakeholders. I take you know user requirements, translate that to technical requirements. Work with you know uh, the tech folks and things like that. So not necessarily what a risk risk manager does, but um, uh, you know I try my best to build my experience so I can relate to what a product manager does for when I'm ready to move there. I can you know quickly show that I've had all of the tools, all of the processes, I've applied them all uh, so I can showcase that I'm ready to hop onto that next job. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, um, it's about you know making sure that you're you're you know checking all the main boxes and showcase that you can perform uh, at that next step or that next level or that next position um, um, to excel. Greg, thank you very much. I'm wondering, is it ever okay to just like just email the the hiring manager directly and and I mean try to just be like, hey, look, before you go and start interviewing other candidates, let me just sell you on my skills. Y'all yeah. know how busy it 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 gets around here. You know how expensive it is to hire some new people. Like just let yeah. me get a shot before you you talk to someone else. Can you, don't get don't get me wrong. Hiring managers love that because they're they're lazy. They will yeah. try. They, they love when people are motivated to want the job motivated to learn. And they know there's this, you know, percent that you have to fill. They're not looking for the 100% match for a position. They're looking for one, do you have the minimum that, you know, you can showcase that you've done that correlates to the position that I'm trying to hire for, but also do you have the will to learn new things when you get onboarded? So people with motivation to reach out is good. And another thing you could do too, and it depends on the, on the company culture is, at your current job, what are the things, what are the discussions you can take with your manager to take on uh, uh, projects that can correlate or to solve projects in the same way of, of the position you're trying to move to, right? So that could be a little bit tricky because some managers might say, well, why are you trying to do that? Are you trying to leave me? And things like that. So you have to watch out for the culture and things like that. So uh, certain cultures they promote people moving around. So you can be open with your manager and say, look, I'm interested in this project. There's a valid problem here, but this is how I will solve it. I will solve it like a data scientist. Um, do you approve that? Yes or no? If yes, then good. Now you're solving a project as a data scientist that you're going to solve that project and use that as a use case to hop on the position that you want for. Greg, thank you so much, Ben. Go for it. Yeah, there's little secret that you can do with hiring managers. Every hiring manager has latitude on what those requirements are. So you look at an HR job description and HR is saying these are the requirements, but most hiring managers can actually push back and say, you know what, if we retitle this, why don't we take away like that master's degree requirement? They can maybe change it to master's or in progress. And so you would be able to be kind of sidestepping a couple of the requirements and all you have to really do is ask the question directly. Hey, I understand you require a master's, but I'm almost there. I mean, am I close enough? Could we overlook that requirement? Can we retitle the position? Can we, you know, because there's a lot that, uh, you know, that I've been able to do to sneak people in the side doors because they were just awesome and they were in the company. I can't explain to you how valuable that institutional knowledge is where you have all the relationships, you know, all of the things that I'm going to have to spend six months teaching somebody anyway. And so you have the opportunity, you know, look at the requirements, definitely try to check as many boxes as possible. 
but also don't be afraid to say, hey, can we get rid of this box? Because hiring managers in most companies can go back to HR and say, yeah, I understand this is the job description for this reason, but can I slip in this little phrasing that we put in there for all time just to help this person get in the door? And typically it's a yes. Dan, thank you very much. Matt, go for it if you got any follow-up questions. No, I don't. That's interesting that you mentioned that, Vin, because I come from like working over in East Asia where the the hiring requirements is like ironclad. You you cannot get past like the masters or you cannot get past the checkbox and you cannot question it. So, I mean, culturally, it's like the first time I'm actually hearing that like you can try and find a way to negotiate. So that's kind of a relief for me. Yeah. Yeah, it's different here because, well, in really large high structure companies there are some there are some process requirements but it's typically not for the technology team i mean that's one of the nice things about the technology team is there's usually a whole lot more flexibility in job descriptions job requirements and titling that's the great thing about technology is you can retitle a position you can reband a position you can regroup a position in some cases to you know trade with somebody else you can there's so much more flexibility in in technology organizations because outside of like heavily regulated industries we can mess around and hr is usually on board with it because there is such a, a range of capabilities that can be qualified for a job and so you don't run into nearly as much of the the discriminatory hire practices or the regulated industry type requirements and you don't have any sort of licensing. And so it's different here. And there's usually a lot more latitude than you think there is. Gina, go for it. Yeah. Um, thanks, Matthew, for, for raising that, because one, that's an, um, an important uh, cultural um, understanding. I mean, it's just interesting from my perspective, for one, but also um, I wanted to kind of add on to that um, what Vin was saying. It's 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 been fascinating to me having worked in government, public sector, and private sector. Actually, most recently, um, uh, higher ed, academic environment. Talk about ironclad. Talk about you know um, once a job uh, description has been put out there. I was in a university environment. It's not that it couldn't never be modified, but Oh, good Lord, was it a challenge. And and also the, the the attitude, you can't underestimate the culture, honestly. It's so important because, man, oh, man, um, especially probably here in the U.S., there's such a broad range, so much diversity organizationally, culturally, that, um, yeah, it's there is, I guess you could say there's always another way, um, to quote the key maker in the matrix. Um, you know, there are other <laughs> heartbreak smiling. There, there really are other, uh, other avenues. And, um, but Matthew, it's, you know, it's in a way, it's not surprising, um, if you're in a different country that people might be looking at you differently or you're at the requirements differently, but Matthew, are you, you're, I, I think you're in the U S is that accurate or where are you at right now? Yeah, I'm currently in the U.S. It's just like when I did my internships um, mm-hmm. as a data analyst, like years ago, it was over in Japan. So they were very structured about what they wanted. You had to have boxes A, B, and C checked. Otherwise, they would never even consider you. 
Yeah, and, and that's really important for you to you know call out because I think that um, we even if we know intellectually or we learn that things are different. On the one hand, it's exciting. I've been so thrilled as I've gone on my data science journey um, just to see that you know not every place is operating. Certainly not not like the university, but even. Um, not like in many other jobs that I've had or organizations that I've had where they really think you need to have all these things. Sometimes you do, but a lot of times you don't. And um, at least in more technologically oriented positions, I think, and I hope, I know there's exceptions, but uh, that there is an acknowledgement, as Vin said, that you're going to have to you're going to have to get people up to speed and it's going to take time. It just is. Um, but, you know, it seems to me in a lot of organizations, they still have this notion um, these days um, that people should be plug and play. And it's like, good luck with that because you're still going to have to educate people. They're still going to have to get up to speed in the culture and the tools and the organizational dynamics is just the way it is. So I think Matthew, um, it's great that you, you know, that you kind of, you, you brought that out because that's um, it's very important um, sometimes for people to know where you where you've come from to kind of help um, guide your efforts going forward. Brings up like a really interesting point because like I get hit up a lot on LinkedIn for like career advice and and stuff like that and you know obviously I make po- you know posts about that as well and a lot of the people I get messaged from are like people in, in countries that are not North America, like for example, India. And I always feel like I, I like the advice I'm, I might state on my post, the advice I might give you might not apply there. One, because it is a different country, different culture, different language, different value system, different education system. Um, so obviously there are obvious exceptions. Um, I don't know. Like, I feel like people come to me for this career advice via LinkedIn, coming from different countries, and I don't think it necessarily applies. I'm just wondering if, if you guys, am I weird for feeling that way? Uh, is that in? What, what are your thoughts? You know, it's, it's funny. It's like there's something about you and me that makes people from other countries approach us. I don't, I mean, I can't figure it out. I, <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't, we, I mean, we've got a couple, I mean, well, you know, some obvious things in common, but, yeah, yeah. I mean, but it's, yeah, it's interesting that I have to, I have to press this career advice to a lot of people the same way where, and I get a lot from Europe where I'll say, look, European market, totally different dynamics. And there are like three different Europe's when it comes to the marketplace there. And then there's England, which is totally, you know, it's, <laughs> you got another four Really, so it's it's really difficult to give generic advice that will cross countries and cultures. And now, when you said Japan, it was like, yeah, exactly, yep. That not like a lot of it's unique in a lot of ways and structured in ways that are. If you're not from there, it doesn't make sense. I think that's the best way to explain it. Like I grew up in Hawaii, so I kind of understand. I got a lot of the cultural influence from Japan. So I kind of, I feel like I understand that a little better, but there's, there's so much diversity across Asia where each country, you know, from country to country, what they're looking for, the number of data scientists they want, you know, what they want data scientists to be doing, the level of maturity, 
in the companies themselves across countries and industries, there's so much diversity that, yeah, no, I feel the same way. I get asked for career advice and I feel like I have to ask more questions that I'm answering in order to give a good answer. And sometimes for me, the best answer is like, I just, I don't, I don't know your market well enough. I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 I mean, you get some, some like pushbacks on posts and I click and see where they're at. Like, okay, well, obviously you're from a different country. Like the advice I give is kind of focused towards, towards mostly North Americans. Um, Cause that's what, what we know best, right? Like it's, you know, yeah. Thanks for, for, uh, for that then appreciate that does not look like there's any other questions so a couple of quick shout outs this week i've got a few i'm going live again multiple times so tomorrow with the data professor uh going live with channon um uh, vin is their like last minute uh opportunity for people to sign up for your course uh well your course starts tomorrow so if you're on linkedin there's a few people still watching go check out vin's course um that this weekend yeah, it is, but I mean, it's pretty much too late to sign yeah, up. So. Yeah, right. Thanks for the shout out, though. I appreciate uh, yeah. it. It's going to be a great course. Yeah, yeah I've taken it. It is amazing. Uh, keep an eye out for it next year uh, when it comes back. Um, but yeah, interviewing, going live tomorrow, 10 a.m. Central Time, uh, Saturday, October 23rd, with uh, the data professor, Channon. Uh, if you miss it, have no fear. It'll be on YouTube and then dripped again later on the podcast many, many months from now. Uh, on Wednesday, I'm going live with uh, Marcus Dusatoy. He wrote the book, The Creativity Code, uh, Art and Innovation in the Age of AI. He is a professor of mathematics at Oxford University. He's uh, been on a number of various uh, really cool documentaries mostly math documentaries and things like that we'll talk about that book and then his new book thinking better the art of the shortcut which is what kicked off the uh, question earlier today about shortcuts uh, art of shortcut in math and life then uh going live with danny ma on thursday um at, i believe like 4 p.m central time and then also recording with daliana lou on wednesday but do not think that we'll be going live for that and of course, going live on Wednesday for the Comet Office Hour. So hope you guys can join in there. And if you guys have had enough live Harpreet this month, I think uh, 15 times total I've gone live uh, this month. Talking about top voice of LinkedIn. I'm the only one like actually really talking on LinkedIn like this now. But, you know, like you can actually hear my voice. Where's, where's, where's the vote at? Where's the vote at, LinkedIn? Holler at me. Holler at me. Uh, Next week, so this week, release an episode, Emily Balchetes. Check that out. A lot of live streams happening this week. Tune into that. Next week, got an episode releasing with uh, uh, Andy Hunt, who wrote The Pragmatic Programmer. Uh, legendary guy. So looking forward to uh, that with you all. Uh, take care. Have a good rest of the weekend. Uh, we will be in touch, my friends. Remember, you got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone. <laughs>